Hello, this is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. So the other day I was listening to a podcast I enjoy called Know Your Enemy. And typically that podcast focuses on the right wing, Republicans, uh, their history, their philosophy, uh, and interviews lots of experts on the right wing. But uh, this was a somewhat different and special episode that focused on climate change. And in particular, uh, the hosts, Matthew Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell, interviewed uh, two people. First is an organizer and activist named Daniel Sherrill, who has a new book out called Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of the World. And the other was Dorothy Fortenberry, a playwright and television writer who's currently working on a limited TV series for Apple TV called Extrapolations, which is going to focus on climate change. And, um, you know, here on Volts, I typically focus on clean energy technology and policy, the nuts and bolts uh, of solving climate change. But this was much more of a discussion focused on living with climate change, how to think about it, uh, how to make peace with it, how to move on and do the work in the face of it. And it got into uh, philosophical and even spiritual topics that I do not typically touch on here at Volts or have not yet anyway. And anyway, I was very struck by it uh, and taken with it. I found it fascinating on uh, a bunch of levels. And it brought up a bunch of themes that I hope to uh, pursue more here on Volt soon. But anyway, uh, I was so taken with it that I wrote Matthew and Sam and asked if I could just share it with you, Volt's listeners. Uh, and they kindly agreed. So what follows is something a little different. It's not a Volt's podcast. It is an episode of Know Your Enemy. You can find Know Your Enemy at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy or at Twitter at knowyourenemypod. That's Y-R instead of Y-O-U-R. Thank you to Matthew and Sam for uh, sharing this episode. And uh, it's long, but it's rich. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and at least it will tide you over until next week when I'll have a couple of new things coming along. So uh, without further ado, here is the latest episode of Know Your Enemy with Daniel Sherrill and Dorothy Fortenberry. All right. Welcome, listeners, to episode 39 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, one of your podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Adler-Bell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. You dry? High yeah, and dry? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dry now. Um, yeah. It's funny. I think the last... The last introduction for a, ma a main episode, I said, well, I'm here in Brooklyn writing out Hurricane Henri, and mm -hmm. last night we got the dregs of Hurricane Ida. Um, uh, my basement flooded. Uh, I mean, in my landlord's basement, but um, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. I was up at like 2 a.m. wringing out towels into buckets and throwing them mm -hmm. into the street, and uh, much, much worse things happened in other parts of Brooklyn and New Jersey and Manhattan, so... Anyway, yes, I guess superstorms like every 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 other week uh, is the new normal. Yeah, and it's um, of course that happened last night. We're recording this intro Thursday morning, 
uh, Wednesday night is when all this happened. I was fine. We live up on the third floor. So nothing other than maybe not having hot water for a while. We didn't, our lives were impacted, but we're recording this intro. The timing's rather auspicious for a really kind of heavy and, but I think quite interesting episode on climate change. And specifically, we're talking, we decided to have on our friend, uh, Daniel Shirell, Dan, who uh, has just out with a really brilliantly written, beautifully written, perceptive book called Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. And it's pitched as a new kind of book about climate change, which is to say not what it is or how we solve it, but how it feels to imagine a future and a family under its weight. That's mm-hmm. from the promotional copy, but it's it's quite apt. And we had Dan on, along with our friend Dorothy Fortenberry, who has thought about climate change for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and as, a, as a writer, she's currently working on a television show about climate change, the implications yeah. of climate change. And so it's quite the pairing. And it's uh, it's really, I think, a pretty unique conversation for the podcast. It was a uh, Matt's brilliant idea to combine Dorothy and Dan, and it, it really... It was it was really really productive. Um, in addition to the show that Dorothy's working on for Apple TV, she's also uh, written a play recently about climate change and motherhood. And so mm-hmm. it's really, um, you know, I guess this this is sort of a atypical Know Your Enemy episode in the sense that it's mm-hmm. not like we're talking about the the right exactly, but it's sort of in the tradition of our episodes about um, depression, depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of fleeting moments in the podcast where we talk more about <laughs> first principles, spirituality, mm-hmm. how to endure. Hope, what hope looks like right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I mentioned this in the episode, I think, but like when the last IPCC report came out about the about climate change, there was this whole discussion about how to reconcile our despair with the necessity of the work that we have to do. And um, that's a significant part of what Dan Shirell's book is about and a significant part of what we discuss here. In addition to a question that I'm sure listeners have thought of maybe in their own families or discussed with their, with their friends, which is the question of, of whether to have children mm-hmm. in the context of a world that looks more and more bleak and, mm-hmm. and how to sort of reconcile those two things. The necessity mm-hmm. of hoping for a livable future for your children uh, with the realistic despair about what appears to be happening to the world. Yes, that's right. Dan's book is uh, a memoir of sorts, and so it's it's very personal, and that's why the conversation took this uh, direction. But also, Dan's a brilliant organizer and has worked, just done incredible, time-consuming work organizing around climate change, especially in New York State. And so for those of our listeners who are activists, organizers, this is also like not just the question of bringing new life into a right, a world you know is going to be racked by by kind of climate change disasters, but how, if you're looking to avert that most disastrous future, you know, how do you get up every morning and put in the work in light of just that kind of despair? Yeah, exactly. So it's 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 kind of like, you know, conservatives like to say the facts don't care about your feelings. Uh, but our feelings do care about the facts, especially when they're this dire. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what the conversation was about. Yeah, I happened to be flipping through a few nights ago, as I sometimes do, my collection of Don DeLillo books. And I was looking, <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at White Noise, uh, which is like one of the like 
most satisfyingly aphoristic of his novels where like on mm-hmm. every page I've underlined some set of lines that are sort of perfect little encapsulations of some idea. Um, but mm-hmm. one, one that I found when I was living through the other night was um, out of some persistent sense of large scale ruin, we kept inventing hope. And uh, <laughs> wow. that is in a sense uh, what this what this podcast is about. That's right. Well, we should get to it. But before we do, just the the usual housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful for our friends at Descent uh, for sponsoring the podcast. They provide digital subscriptions for those of you who subscribe for $10 a month at our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. And of course, as always, for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. August was a light month for us. You know, we needed to take some time off mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. and also get some reading done. You know, our episodes take some preparation. So August was a lighter month, but we're kind of back in the full swing of things. Uh, this episode should be coming out just a little over a week after our last main episode with Sam Tannenhaus on Bill Buckley's run for mayor in New York City in 1965. So we're back. Um, yeah. Descent's still sponsoring us. Please still sign up. Uh, and what else, Sam? Well, we want to thank Jesse Brenneman, our producer. We want to thank Will Epstein, who provides the music for the podcast. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That's all. So without further ado, here's our uh, episode on hope and despair and the end of the world (laughs) with uh, (laughs) Daniel Shirell and Dorothy Fortenberry. Uh, We mentioned some of this, but uh, Daniel Shirell is an organizer in the climate movement. Um, Warmth, this book we're talking about, is his first book. And as Matt mentioned, he's led a bunch of important campaigns to fight fossil fuel companies in New York in particular. And uh, he's currently the campaign director at the Climate Jobs National Resource Center. Dorothy Fortenberry, who listeners will remember we've had on the podcast before, she's a playwright, screenwriter, and essayist. She memorably uh, was a writer on The Handmaid's Tale. And her new play, The Lotus Paradise, Paradox, which is also about climate change, motherhood, and the ethics of creativity, will premiere at the Warehouse Theater in Greenville, South Carolina in 2022. So Mm -hmm. an ideal pairing, uh, atypical, but I think excellent episode. And uh, here it is, uh, Dorothy and Dan. Enjoy. Dorothy and Dan, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited for this episode. We're going to talk about Dan's book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World, Daniel Shirell, author of this great new book from Penguin. Dorothy, well, tell us what you're doing right now, because it's relevant to this discussion, I think. Uh, it, it definitely <laughs> is. I am I am podcasting in from my office Um in Glendale, Queens, where I am co-show running um, a new show for Apple TV Plus, um, which is called Extrapolations. And it's, I think, I think I can say this, like the sort of highest profile, biggest budget uh, TV show about climate change. And it's like going to be hopefully sort of a new way that we can think about and talk about climate change in the TV drama universe. Um, so that's that's what I'm thinking about all day long is how to do that. Dan, would you say that's relevant to your book? <laughs> um, yeah, deeply relevant. Yeah, and I feel like I've been needing that show for like 15 years and now it's happening. So I'm excited. And I feel like I've been the person trying to like elbow climate change into other TV shows for um 
probably not 15 years, but um, as long as I've been doing TV, because there's a lot of apocalypse on television and very little climate change. Right. That might be a symptomatic combination of realities right there. But yeah, I guess we'll get to that. I was really excited to have this conversation and to convene these particular brains because I've had some of the best conversations ever about the sort of combination of climate change organizing and art with both of you and Dan's book, Warmth, which we will draw from in this episode, is sort of the distillation of a lot of wisdom that I feel like I've derived from Dan from being his friend for many years. And so I'm just super psyched. I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. The tagline for this episode is two Catholics, two Jews talking about the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's the punchline? I guess you'll find Uh, out. Yeah. The punchline is that the world ends before the end of the recording. (laughs) But not for climate change reasons. Totally surprising twist. You know, I thought one way kind of into the conversation would just be for Dandy you to describe your book a little bit, because I think it's fair to say it's a unique book on climate change. I haven't read anything like it. And even though there's a lot of books coming out by a lot of people we know even on climate change, this one was different. And could you just talk about, you know, the way you approached it and the structure of the book even and what the kind of conceit of the book is? Yeah. So I started writing this book in 2018 mm-hmm. when I had been active in the American youth climate movement for about a decade, which meant sort of pedal to the metal organizing, um, mm-hmm. endless conference calls, emails. I was sort of lost in the trenches of political work. Um, and for the most part, the thing that I was actually dealing with, which was this climate crisis that hovered above my head or in this like little compartment emitting a low frequency of anxiety at all time, but largely (laughs) unexamined. Even for someone who woke up every day ostensibly taking action on this crisis, it still remained pretty abstract to me. And Mm. it was was like, it felt like a dissociative trance almost for 10 years where I was like Mm. going about my business. I was taking the subway to work. I was like pouring myself milk and cereal in the mornings. I was like watching TV with my partner, whatever it was. And meanwhile human civilization was hurtling towards a cliff Hmm. and we could see that cliff approaching and it felt weird to me that I could sort of walk around in this daze and then every now and then like literally like once or twice a year I would wake up and I don't know what induced it but I would feel for a moment the crushing metaphysical and spiritual weight of the thing that I was actually trying to take action on Mm -hmm. and I just wouldn't be able to get out of bed. I'm not somebody, I think, prone to depressive symptoms, but it felt like a variant of depression. Mm -hmm. And also, weirdly, I came to treasure those moments a little bit because it felt like Mm. those were the only times I was like living in reality. Uh And that was the only time I was feeling something commensurate to the scale of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could kind of sense that there was this not of that feeling winding itself up in my chest that I hadn't had time to unspool. And then if I didn't do that, if I didn't like look into those moments of lucidity and see what was happening inside of them, then something in me was just going to snap and I wouldn't be able to keep doing climate work for the rest of my life, which is like the plan right now. Um, so I wrote a book. Um, you know, I, I first try to look for a book. Literature is definitely a way that I process my experience of the world. 
I can tell this as somebody who's lived with Dan that that is 100% true. <laughs> uh, not um, me- Measured not just um, in the amount of time that, in his limited time where he was not working, that he was reading novels, but also in the amount of space that they took up um, in our household. Yeah, Sam was, a fi- <laughs> Sam was a very accommodating roommate when I showed up with uh, 40 boxes of books on day one, unannounced. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of what I was finding in literature when I was finding climate change at all, it was basically being displaced into the future as like a cli-fi premise, right? There's some like dystopian thing. It's like 2050 or 2070 or 2090. And very good writers were like unpacking what's going to happen when things get a little bit worse. Um, And what I was looking for was a book that could contend with the weight of the climate crisis like right now in 2021 this surreal weight that sort of colors everything about our lives and is going to change everything about our lives increasingly over the next century, but is still somehow hard to access emotionally for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. And so I began writing this. I didn't intend to write a book. I was like literally jotting notes in my phone on the subway to my climate organizing job, mostly as sort of like a Hail Mary autotherapeutic process. (laughs) Because I just didn't see a lot of avenues for processing climate overwhelm in a way that wasn't basically minimizing or compartmentalizing. And so I just Mm -hmm. created one for myself. Mm -hmm. And I knew that many very sage books had been written about like what the climate crisis is and how we quote unquote solve it. But I felt there's like a missing middle term between those kinds of books. Yeah, like how do we live for yeah. the next decades? Like we know, and this is a deeply anti-fatalist book, and we can get into that, but we do know that things are going to get worse before they get better. Yeah. And that no one is going to not be touched by this. And so how do we live with that knowledge? And how do we create public spaces for a kind of commiseration that can make it not abstract, but actually deeply personal. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that's like a deeply necessary part of like living ethically and resiliently in the Anthropocene. And and Dan, the the book is addressed to a child you're not sure you're going to have. Yeah. It was on the one hand, like I created this imaginary interlocutor for myself to be able to like get under the skin of my of the little Pandora's box I put the climate crisis in yeah, and like be able to have an actual vulnerable con- conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And right. talking to this person who I really do love and like, it, that sounds weird to say, cause it's like, so in the abstract, but I think much in the way that like novelists will describe like loving the characters they've created. I think like this was a person that I could um, channel a very vulnerable set of emotions that, weren't finding um, a place in the public sphere. But it was also just like a fucking practical thing. Thinking about the climate crisis has sort of made me realize that like low key for a while, like below the level of conscious attention, I've been excited about the prospect of being a father and like Mm. think that creating a family is like a beautiful thing to do with one's life. And that also I was deeply ambivalent about that prospect given what I knew Mm. about the scientific projections. And so in a way, writing this book to my, that hypothetical future child, I wanted to literally, if I were ever going to become a father, I felt like I needed to be able to hand them like an actual physical document, something that would start a conversation between us 
that was an honest conversation and that didn't collapse into despair or like inflate mm-hmm. things with a false optimism. But right. I need to be able to have that conversation. And if I couldn't have that conversation, then there was just no question about having a family. Well, I wanted to bring in Dorothy. This is a the perfect uh, excuse to do so because you have two non-hypothetical children. Do, <laughs> right. They're very, very not hypothetical. They're yes. extremely... I, don't, I haven't extremely, met them, and they nonetheless strike me as extraordinarily not hypothetical. Yes, yes. they're very real. Yeah, no, it, it was it was interesting um, for me reading Warmth and the sort of idea of considering the question of having children in light of climate change. Because I'm, I'm somebody who also has been thinking about climate change since probably like the early 90s. Like I feel like it, it came into my life through a sort of zealous middle school science teacher. Um, so the blessings of a zealous middle school t- science uh, teacher. There, I mean, he, he brought a lot of things into my life, the climate crisis and they might be giants, I think were like top of the list, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so it's been something I've been thinking about, but it was interesting reading the book because my, I mean, not to like get way too into like my own personal family history stuff, but, um, my relationship towards, uh, my own choices around having kids, like given some stuff in my life, I felt very little sense that I could be sure that that I could have kids, um, that my kids would, uh, you know, survive past infancy, um, that they would not have severe disabilities. Like there were just like a lot mm. of family things that I was grappling with. So mm-hmm. when I was thinking about having kids, it felt like the choice was like, do you want to do this? even in like the absolute darkest version. Uh, And, and I, you know, spent some time and, you know, I I wrote a play about, about this um, sort of question and, and sort of once I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm in um, even in the nightmare scenario, then I feel like in some ways, like, and I will have to shepherd them. Like if they are able to, you know, live and be around and know what's going on, then the next thing I'll have to do is like shepherd them through climate change. Hmm, but that, yeah. that ended up being sort of like the best possible version I could imagine. <laughs> um, right, right. Which like tells you way more than you want to know about me, but but it, it was an orientation. So I think when, when, you know, my kids were born and, and when they turned out to be healthy and they're, you know, running around and doing things, I am just so profoundly grateful for them. I think the the hardest thing for me about parenting and climate change, given the age that my kids are right now, which is elementary school age, is that all of the very normal things that you do with kids have this like profound undertow of sadness. Hmm. Um, So like going out into the yard and like looking at butterflies um, <laughs> that's so like dark. Just, there's just like a shadow, you know, and like <laughs> yeah. not, and, and I think an enormous part of my job as, as their parent becomes to not let my shadow become their shadow. Like, like they, they will miss the butterflies when the butterflies aren't there anymore. They don't need to preemptively miss them at age five. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just me, like raining on their picnic in mm. sort of a, a yeah. mean way. But then it feels like part of my job as their parent is to see them sort of watch a butterfly with wonder, feel a wave of sadness about sort of butterflies and the future, and then pull myself out of that sadness so that I 
don't inflict it on them and they can still have a moment of magic and joy at the existence of butterflies. Right. It strikes me as such a difficult part of this question of how much of the dread that I feel do I have an obligation to share and kind of prepare um, my children for, or I don't have children, but, you know, my little brother who's five or my uh, nephew who's one. Um, what what are my obligations to them to share that despair, to prepare, to prepare them for um, what will be lost or could be lost? And then what obligation do I have to the opposite, the thing that you're describing as a, its own kind of obligation, which is to allow them the moment of appreciation before um, <laughs> imposing our own crushing preemptive despair about what's coming upon them. Yeah. I also feel though, and I'm very aware of speaking in this conversation as somebody who has literally no idea about the reality of parenting. <laughs> um, so I feel like that's an you important caveat. You so disclaimed. I so haven't written any books written to my children. We've got Dan's little orange baby <laughs> in our hands right now. It's called warmth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, when I think about that question and that image <laughs> like going outside i think about fireflies a lot because like that's the thing i see here in dc that are like their numbers are slowly dwindling but they're still just like they feel like a natural bonus of being alive the fact that <laughs> sometimes you walk into the fire to the forest and there are these little pinpricks of light yeah but i i don't think that we only have to talk about this from the angle of despair yeah because when mm -hmm. i think about bringing kids into the world and the sort of the ways that like digitized late capitalism is going to try to shape their attention <laughs> it's going to shape their attention on all the wrong fucking shit you know their attention will be like laser focused on like small dopamine hits being purveyed to them by multinational corporations it'll be focused on their immediate economic prospects which is not an unimportant thing to focus on. And it will be focused on, you know, politically it'll be focused on, despite Bernie's rhetoric that I love dearly, people in their immediate and obvious interest groups. And I think that like everything about that set, that sort of scope of attention is wrong. And when I think about like the climate crisis, not only as a problem, like I call it in the book, but as a symptom of the ways the ways we've trained and blinded and made myopic our attention as a civilization. There's just like still a lot of like gratitude to be lavished on the world, even as it starts to disintegrate under us. And like the tragedy of climate change is like it demands of us that we, we expand our myop myopia beyond the human species and that that in, in itself is a beautiful prospect that I want to pass on to my kids and I think will be incredibly salutary. And also, as you do that, you also have to accommodate the massive loss that we're undergoing right now. So this is maybe just a narrative for myself, but I think, <laughs> I think um, as important to paying attention to the things that we're losing is paying attention to the manifold, unbelievable things that we still have and that are frankly going to outlast us <laughs> as a species, no matter what we do. One of the points you make in Warmth is that uh, you were born in 1990, correct? 
Correct. A terrible year, as you put it, <laughs> or a terrible <laughs> year to be born. But the point actually behind that comment is that you were born kind of just at the right time, such that like your whole life has been lived in the shadow of what you call in the book the problem, right? The kind of looming catastrophe of climate change. Uh, whereas older generations, one reason they can kind of kick it to the future is that they kind of knew the old world, the way we used to live before kind of the full reality of climate change was was known or at least widely known. And so that the kind of generational difference plays a role in kind of how you describe your own consciousness of this problem. And one of the things I was wanted to ask you about was how different is this really than kind of most of life in modernity? You know, under the creative destruction of capitalism, you know, like I was listening to a Sturgill Simpson cover of that song Paradise a day or two ago. John Prine song. Yeah, the John Prine song. You know, the evil kind of, you know, owner of the the coal mine kind of took away the family farm. Right. Or the, the lumber company, whatever it was. Right. Like this idyllic scene of a of a kind of natural setting is decades ago being sung about as kind of a you know paradise lost as a kind of fall from you know, the way things once were to this ugly, destructive new way things are. And so what's different about this moment than like, let's say life since the invention of the internal combustion engine? <laughs> yeah. Uh, history post-industrial revolution is like one long loss of innocence. Or has it all been building to this? I just, yeah. you know, it's like sometimes I would read something you wrote in Warmth and think that does feel new, but then I'd think about it more and say, well, is it really just a variation on a kind of sense of loss we've had? And is it also just the sense that one of the like hallmarks of the modern sensibility, whether in literature or in our own brains, sure. is mm -hmm. this sense of some kind of lost paradise, lost nostalgia for some kind of wholeness that was once there that's been undermined by the sort of atomizing forces of capitalism and, and post-industrial life. But I also feel like something that's to me is such a vital question on the question of, of loss and change is like, you know, a, a lot of this sort of rhetoric in a worldview, like it starts to feel incredibly conservative, right? Like it's, it's yes. like, oh my mm -hmm. God, like everything's changing. Oh no, oh no, oh no. And something that I find fascinating is like you know, I think you talk on your podcast a lot about how sort of the conservative project is about hierarchy maintenance and the question of climate change becomes like, would you really destroy the entire world for hierarchy maintenance? Like, are you so invested <laughs> yes. in these racial, gender, whatever hierarchies that you're willing to sort of like a Bond villain release an odorless, colorless gas that's going to end life on Earth as we know. Like, it's such a massive change. But I, I do feel like on, on some level, I don't know that people understand that the question that they're confronting is like, well, your grandchildren can have classmates named like Jorge and Khadija, and like some of them might be non-binary or your grandkids can like not have seasons. Like, <laughs> like, like your grandkids will, they will not have the life you had, right? Like there will be intergenerational tumult because there will be, but like which of those two prospects fills you with like a greater sense of shock? Like I, I know what mine is, right? I know the one where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so much change for my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I only feel the pain and sorrow. And then there are other things where I'm like, that will be different, but like, I bet they'll, they'll find their way through. And it, and mm. I just, it's 
stunning and interesting and sort of breaks my brain in some ways to think that like conservative interests have spent so much time and so much money doing climate gate and creating false skepticism in the interests of delaying something that's going to be so catastrophically destructive because they hope that the destruction will further, you know, the hierarchies that are already entrenched. That's interesting, Dorothy. You think when you project yourself into that, like the unknowable brain of Scott Pruitt, you imagine the climate crisis playing out as a weapon to drive further wedges into existing hierarchies. Oh, yeah. I think I, I really agree with you. But yeah, that's, I, th- that's, I think he's yeah. like shock doctrining, you know, the whole yeah. way down. Uh-huh. Totally. Like, totally. <laughs> You know, when uh, our last episode, when we had Sam Tannenhaus on to talk about uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s 1965 run for mayor of New York City, there was a point actually in either one of Buckley's speeches or something he wrote, you know, about his campaign for mayor, where he said, my message is, you get yours. And that sense of like, you know, sure, the world may collapse, but, you know, we're high enough up on this rung that we're going to get ours and we'll be we'll be ultimately fine. Yeah. Is that what you're imagining kind of by the maintenance of hierarchy? Yeah. It's very easy to me to see how scarcity and a sense of change, you know, those flow very easily into, well, the project is more guns, more patriarchy, you know, less interpersonal trust. More borders. More borders, more secure borders, more nationalism, more fear of anything that looks like disruption because there's already so much disruption. You know, I don't know. I, I I think when I think about climate, I feel the most conservative because I feel like I just think about like I want everything to be like it was when I was a kid. Mostly, mm-hmm. what what I mean by that is the condition of glaciers. You know, <laughs> but but I yeah. do do I, I do these like weird thought experiments where I'm like, how much office sexual harassment would I put up with in society in exchange <laughs> for like lower carbon? Like like, I'm like here are the positive things that have happened in my lifetime. Like what what which of them would I trade? if I could reverse climate change, right? right. Like what yeah. are, what are all of the, the sort of general liberalization events that I would throw away if all I could do is save the climate. And what you're pointing to is exactly this sort of the lie of conservatism, which we often encounter, which is that the idea of its standing athwart history yelling stop has never really been true. At least it's, if you're looking for a single heuristic, the maintenance of not tradition for its own sake, but traditional hierarchy is is the raison d'etre. And so giving up the world in order to maintain those hierarchies, giving up what we loved about the world of our childhood um, is worth it. Gosh, Sam, that comment was awfully resonant of a certain scriptural illusion. (laughs) (laughs) What would you trade for the world? What profited a man? And it it is amazing to see the the sociopathic trade-offs that some (laughs) of these actors are willing to make. I mean, it does, um, it raises as much confusion as it does rage in me mm-hmm. but i'm i also think that the climate movement writ large is not fighting for the maintenance of a status quo yeah. right mm-hmm. like we're not like i think we're trying to rewind the glaciers like <laughs> back down their gullies to the state they were in 1760 but it's also like the whole premise of the climate crisis is that in the west we've created an autophagic civilization and like now it's eating itself. Right. And that's like the apotheosis of the thing that was started with the creation of the internal combustion engine. And so in some ways 
one of the things that motivates me around this movement is that this really is a crucible through which our only option is to build the world that we deserve. Because mm-hmm. like a polity and an economy that recognizes interdependence is like literally the only way we, we ensure our survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the point of view of the natural world, there is nostalgia to, to turn back. And I think in our lifetimes, just with how geologic change happens, that won't be an option. But I think the climate movement is trying in some ways to like turn the mm-hmm. dial forward as fast as possible on societal transformation basically in the next three decades, after which all bets are off. Well, so I, just everything that you're saying about sort of the, the climate crisis as an opportunity to sort of reimagine who we are and sort of look at our society um, is reminding me of my favorite book about climate change, a little something I like to call Laudato Si, on care <laughs> for our common home. And I'm not um, offended, Dorothy. Good. He's an incredible writer. <laughs> um you can be my second favorite book. Up there. Actually, probably <laughs> weather. Weather is probably my second favorite book. Um, no offense, but um, I just like. There's just so much in there about basically how like we're consuming things because we have empty hearts that are full only of believing that buying a bunch of garbage will make up for our sadness, and that other people are what we should hate and we should like hate everyone and go shopping all day. Um, and that like the climate can also be an opportunity to imagine who we are and like, you know, can I just say that for the, the small, very small percentage of our listeners who do not know what Laudato oh, so is, sorry. no, it's remarkably small. I'm certain I've failed <laughs> to get more secular Jews to listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> Laudato Si is Pope Francis's second encyclical, which is about the climate crisis in large part. And it's just like hella good and everyone should read it. Basically, like he's talking about how the, you know, instability, uncertainty becomes a seedbed for collective selfishness, but no system can completely suppress our openness to what is good, true and beautiful, or our God-given ability to respond to his grace at work deep in our hearts. The idea that like we still contain a capacity to look at each other and the natural world and find goodness and beauty. And I think that's something that comes through in your book also is like, we we have the capacity to imagine connection and beauty in the midst of sadness and how we hold on to that and how we hold on to each other is our challenge. Because Dan might not want to follow the Pope. Um... <laughs> I'll follow the Pope. <laughs> hey, Sam, who are you to judge? <laughs> wow. oh, okay. the, the divisions are laid bare. Very well, 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 well done, Matt. Deep, Deep pull. pull. Good pull. I actually am going to make Dan follow the Pope because I'm going to read, <laughs> in fact, from his book. Because one of the things that I did want to get to, and we're right at the right spot to get there, is something that I drew an enormous amount of clarity and satisfaction from Dan's book, which is I was reading it for the second or third time right when the the latest IPCC report came out, which um, induced on the internet an enormous amount of despair (laughs) and a lot of questions about whether it's possible to mourn and organize at the same time, whether there's something essentially reactionary or at least nihilistic about facing the problems that we face squarely, about acknowledging the fact that in our hearts at certain moments we feel that we're not going to fix it and that that the future that that we envision 
in some honest way is just is just so awful. Um, and then there was all this kind of very dissatisfying back and forth between people where there's like elisions between what's strategically useful to talk about and what's kind of philosophically true for us and what's emotionally and therapeutically necessary in order to go on living our lives. And these things were set up as kind of in conflict with each other in ways that I don't see as necessarily true. And while this whole Twitter debate was playing out at the low and uh, disappointing level at which Twitter debate usually plays out, I was reading the end of Dan's book. And there's a beautiful passage where you talk about just these sorts of dichotomies between mourning and organizing, between hope and despair. And I'm going to read it and set up so that we can all talk about it for a minute. So this is from um, Dan's book, Warmth. It begins, These then were the two choices on offer. You could mourn or you could organize. You could weep or you could work. You could admit the full crushing truth of the problem we were actually facing. Let it cave in your walls and drown out your abjurations so that even in your own head there would be nowhere left to run. Or you could dam it up behind something labeled hope or courage or determination so that you would never have to look at the thing itself, just the shell you'd erect around it, which like any flood wall, betrayed nothing of the currents at its back. I was caught between these options for years, too hopeful to cave, too hopeless to simply put on a brave face. I wanted to mourn and organize, but I could do neither fully, mired as I was in the sense that they precluded each other. It is a terrible, impossible dichotomy, and what's more, it is false. I no longer believe that grief and resistance are mutually exclusive. I think the former is necessary to the latter, that honest sorrow is perhaps the only thing that makes a real fight even possible. To mourn without fighting is to tap out at the exact moment we need to step in, but to fight without mourning is to grapple with a ghost, to try to stop something you've never actually realized, because how can you solve a problem that you do not take as real? And how can you take the problem as real without feeling like a dam has finally broken inside you like a a flood is overwhelming that city you call yourself. That is a terrifying prospect, but I'm not convinced there's another way. To contend seriously with the problem, you'll first have to let it in. And when I say let it in, what I really mean is drag it towards you, press it down, sit with it past the point of discomfort and pain and despair until you can observe it without blinking, until its weight is just a thing about you. In this way, letting something in is too passive. What I'm talking about is fitting a hyper object into your heart without it breaking. Which is possibly my favorite passage from the book. And, um, and something that uh, has the virtue of being, in my view, entirely true. But not something I would have been able to say before reading it. I mean, I think that what I'm trying to describe there is the emotional tightrope that I think we're all walking, whether we know it or not. There's basically the, like the Michael Bloomberg take, which is like, we're fine, you know, liquid hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's like <laughs> the many, the many sort of like people on Twitter who don't really think about the climate crisis that much. And then the IPC drops and they like hop on to say, we're all doomed. Why bother? Yeah. Which I am deeply sympathetic towards and also uh, frustrates me to no end. Because what was actually made clear in the IPCC report is that there is a massive range of outcomes still ahead of us between 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, in which we continue to have horrible hurricanes that hit New Orleans like uh, Hurricane Ida did today, and flooding and extreme heat domes, but also there's the possibility of adaptation and yeah. perhaps even grace. 
Right. And then there's warming on the scale of three, four, or five degrees Celsius, at which point you just can't feed and hydrate everybody on planet Earth by a huge margin. Right. Um, and you get massive die-offs and big migrations. Um, and for every tenth of a degree we move the thermometer between those two poles, we are saving or consigning literally millions of people to life or death. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we can do it. Like, like we, we have been filming this for, you know, three weeks. Like, I, I don't know. But that is the, like, emotional and ideological project of this show is to try to create a conceptual framework to understand small distinctions having gigantic consequences mm. over time. Mm-hmm. Um the like single most uh, unusual thing that we're doing as a climate sort of science fiction television show is that there's not a precipitating event. Like it's not a, like the day the zombies showed up the day that the, mm. di- like, like the white walkers. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, Sorry. I had to say it. Dorothy. No, but, but I feel, but I feel like so much of um, apocalyptic narrative is after all the decisions have been made by anybody who could make anything better. Mm. And so then the stakes of every episode are like, can we find food? Can we find shelter? Like, can we find a weapon? And those keep you going, and and the climate event is long past, though. So nobody who you're actually following could have done anything about it. And I, mm-hmm. I think what we need is some sort of narrative and storytelling to get exactly at what Dan was saying, which is that like there are enormous decisions that could have been made by like the people who designed ballots in South Florida in 2000 and like they did not make those decisions <laughs> painful, well painful. but like given yeah. given the, where we are there are still a tremendous number of decisions and that the difference between 3 and 1.5 is enormous it can be in certain circumstances accumulation of those small decisions exactly and and mm-hmm. endlessly unfolding like every day in front of us is a day to you know work collectively in community, you know, towards trying to push that dial in the correct direction. Mm -hmm. And those days just keep unfolding. There's no one day where you get to look at and go like, well, it's over now. So at least I can stop thinking about it. Totally. And, and, but we have that desire, I think constantly people really, and I feel this in myself, I want to know how it ends. You know, I want to project myself into the future and have the credits roll and know if we won or we lost. Yeah, like one of the most profound realizations I had about myself is that I was scrolling Twitter to see how it ended. And I was like, oh, honey, like it's not going to end. You're reading it because you're you're waiting to be like, and that's it. But like, it's just a series of words. You're waiting for the, the punchline. The aristocrats. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and indeed, indeed it is the aristocrats. Um, but yeah, like I... I think the like we have this this baked in human love of narrative and conflict and resolution and endings. And I think like obviously, like, you know, I am a fan of once a week religious practice that takes place in a church. There are many ways to do it, but I think any kind of daily or weekly practice that's just boring and repetitive is actually a really good corrective to that desire for an ending to just be like, no, you just show up. Like you just show, no, it didn't stop. No, you just, you know, and like you're talking about meditating felt really related, which is like, you just 
you know, it's the same thing. It, you show up every day and that's the rest of your life. And no one comes and is like, you got it. Enlightenment. You can stop now. Yeah. And I think, I mean, part of um, the way I think about that question is in how I conceptualize, like, what is hope in 2021? Like, what is hope with regards to the climate crisis? And for me, hope is just the realization that I have no fucking clue how this thing is going to go. Like, it is just indeterminacy. And sitting inside that indeterminacy and being able to abide there, I think, is a really important skill that, as Dorothy says, is really fostered by some sort of religious practice. Um, But I think when I talk to people, I think increasingly, like just among my network of friends and family, for all the people who are sort of suffering climate grief and overwhelm sort of like silently in their little silos or like on Twitter doom scrolling, like people will want to talk to me um, because they see an avenue there. And there's always this question of um, how do I find meaning coming of age in an era where the world is collapsing around our years? And I really understand, I sympathize with that question, but I also in some ways feel like I can't imagine a human life that would be more invested in meaning than the lives we were being asked to lead right now. Whereas Dorothy says, literally every action, including enormously if we pass this reconciliation bill that's currently on a knife, knife's edge in Congress, the passage of that reconciliation bill and like a fucking Josh Gothheimer or whatever swallows his words and signs it, yeah. like his signature on that bill is going to have a material impact on people living 500 years from now. Like undoubtedly, not to mention subsistence farmers in Bangladesh who are trying to like coax a crop from increasingly saline soil. And so in some ways, I feel like the problem of climate change is not like, how do we find meaning? But like the amount of meaning is almost overwhelming. Right. (laughs) How to be able to sit with that gracefully and not be crushed by it. Well, I have a question that kind of follows from this. And maybe even Dorothy, you might want to take a stab at it first. But I did just want to say that you know, we were joking, Dorothy, when you brought in Pope Francis. My boyfriend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, but Dan, your book begins uh, pretty early on. There's a religious and spiritual note about uh, going to religious services with your grandmother and even kind of, you know, the idea of waiting for the Messiah is present there. And I feel like, you know, one thing Christianity and Judaism have in common is the kind of like already but not yet kind of thing, right? Where you might have some sense of the future, but there's also something mysterious about it. And I just, you know, since we're invoking terms like grace and hope, I wonder, Dorothy, especially since hope is one of the, you know, three Christian virtues, how you think about hope in light of everything we've been discussing, because it's not the same as optimism. I say that all the time. Hope isn't optimism. Is it a kind of orientation towards the future that does not paralyze you in the present? It allows you to move forward somehow? What, what is hope for you, especially, you know, given your particular Catholic commitments or Christian commitments, ones we share? Um, and, you know, how might kind of spirituality inform all this conversation? Because it feels like the terms we reach for are inflected with spiritual meaning, hope, grace, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't find a container to hold my climate sadness that doesn't Mm -hmm. look like religion. Like that's just me, right? That's just like me and who I am as a person. And that's not, you know, a prescription for anyone else to go do anything with, with their time. But like, for me, like I'm walking Mm -hmm. around with this thing and 
the other containers that might be able to hold it feel really impossible. And for me, Mm -hmm. a sort of organized religious spiritual practice is kind of the only thing that is, you know, communal and individual and just used to holding sadness. Like it's a space where Mm -hmm. people are accustomed to being in grief. And so like my grief um, feels like a normal fit. It's not a space where people are just like, cheer up. It's a party. You're so sad. (laughs) Um, Like you can, you can cry at a church and people kind of let it, let it be. Um, So this is, and I think for me, I think a lot about how hope is a virtue and how all the virtues are hard. Um, because if <laughs> yes. they were they were easy, they wouldn't be virtues. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And and for me, I, I think you know this isn't original, but I, I do return to it a ton. That hope is in a lot of ways an act of humility. That my desire to predict doomsday scenarios is often from a self protective place of ego and pride. And I kind of want to be the one who's like, ha ha, I called it. Everything's awful. Um, (laughs) And, Uh you know, like there is a part of me that wants to go back to like whatever I was tweeting in the summer of 2016 and be like, boy, pandemic nailed it. But but that really like that that Mm -hmm. urge to assume the worst for me again um, comes often from a place of fear that then wants to go to a place of ego and control and be like, well, I couldn't stop it, but at least I could predict it. So my power, I'm powerless in action, but I can be powerful in narrative. Right. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, Dorothy, the first conversation we had, one of the questions I asked you was, it is interesting because so much of the kind of world's spiritual wisdom is about letting go. Right. I mean, Dan, you read, uh, Eckhart Tolle's book, right? The Power of Now. <laughs> but there is like in across religious tradition, some some sense of letting go, right, is like a key source of wisdom. And yet we're in a position politically with, you know, with regard to what we need to do to confront climate change where we have to do stuff. And it feels like, you know, sometimes that... We have to uh, hold on tightly to something. Yes. Yeah. Like Dan wrote about bringing something and putting it against your chest and keeping it there. Yeah. yeah. So that tension between doing something, which we desperately do need to do, and letting go, you know, at the heart of the world's great spiritualities is a, such an interesting question to me. Well, and I think it's it's that thing of like, it's not only mine to do, but it's also not mine to walk away from. I'm getting it <laughs> yes. wrong, but you know, it's, it's, there's work and it's presumptuous to say that this work is entirely, you know, only for me. And if I can't fix it, it doesn't matter. But it's also presumptuous to say like, well, I have no part in it. I couldn't possibly yeah. do anything. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's, it's the humility of understanding that your power comes from connecting with other people and that mm-hmm. you should like finding some sort of way to believe that things might happen, but it's super hard. I have a super hard time with it. Like, you know, like I can talk about it, but like actually, actually living it is, is incredibly difficult. It's one of the things that I, in what you just said that resonated so deeply is this idea that creating spaces of community where hope and despair and hope as a daily practice, a hard thing can coexist with, mourning and sadness and crying is i think you know one of the preconditions for good <laughs> good communities i want to be part of but also for the kind of politics that i believe in and that i think also that the moment calls for 
like I've written about how like the left has this tradition of transmuting defeat <laughs> defeat <Yes. laughs> and mourning into organizing that it that it really never has been like don't mourn organize it's it's mourn and organize and mourn and organize and mourn and organize over and over and over again but as much as i can point to historical circumstances in which i feel that we did do that we meaning the left of which i am a uh a partisan still nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> to the to the end as much as that has been the case in the past I, I i sometimes don't know that we are really drawing on that history and on those resources and on the communities that are already doing it well sufficiently and that um like i of course like this is like now we're doing sort of like kye liturgy but like <laughs> <laughs> but like you know like a like a politics that has space for vulnerability and that in fact like foregrounds it is something that um i think is a necessity politically philosophically, ethically, and strategically. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I, I read, Dorothy, your excellent piece in Commonweal that <laughs> remixed Donald Trump with Maya Angelou. Uh, oh, yes. And then I went to, I was like at the doctor's office the next day and saw that quote painted on a, a wall. Um, <laughs> it's everywhere. But also the idea of it being at a doctor's office is so dark. Yeah, yeah it's so it's dark. So, it's, so, it's so Foucauldian in the, in the, in retrospect. Yeah. But there is, I think, you know, that article made a really important point about like, there's a reason the left tries to stay grounded in materialism. Because if you let like the least common denominator politics of feeling prevail, like what you get is a is a Donald Trump. Hmm. And at the same time, like if all we have is materialism, we're not going to be ready for the century ahead of us. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's there's I think still a leftist reaction to processing, <laughs> especially on like what I might describe as the masculine left. Um, that treats it as a sort of indulgence and a distraction from important political work. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, I wrote this book in Australia and through a variety of sort of lucky circumstances, lived for a few months with an indigenous tribe up in the Northwest who had just won this like incredible David versus Goliath victory um, of like a multinational fossil fuel company was trying to build a natural gas plant in the middle of their uh, ancestral song line, which uh, members of this tribe had been walking uh, literally at a time so distant it's measured in like uh, geologic eras. And talking to them about that campaign, you know, the political machinations were, I mean, this is so obvious to say, but of course the political machinations were just like deeply secondary, right? <laughs> what mattered was that they loved this country like another member of their family and didn't see the boundaries of society ending with homo sapiens. Society was a thing that included rocks and the beach and mm -hmm. hermit crabs. And like all of those things were connected in like a huge network of like debt and obligation and commiseration and caring. And <laughs> there's like a very reductive way in which white people can talk about indigenous quote unquote indigenous knowledge as like a climate crisis, silver bullet. And I don't think that's what it is. If it could have been, we're past that point. We're probably that ship sailed with uh, the violence of colonialism. But I do think building a spiritual practice into our organizing and not going off and doing it in some other setting is deeply important for its resilience, especially as like 
the density of extreme weather event headlines is just going to keep increasing. And already I feel like it's fucking wall to wall this summer. Like it's really, it's been, it's felt very different. No, it is. I I mean, I, Hurricane Katrina happened um, right before my wedding. Like my, my husband's from New Orleans and the priest who was supposed to marry us, you know, was very busy and his whole family didn't come. And I think about that sometimes with climate, like how, how shocking that felt and how connected to climate it mm-hmm. felt. And if you had told me then, like, this is where we would be, like, I, I couldn't have handled it, right? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't, I, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't have known. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but I think about that, like, my memories of my wedding, and when I look at photos of my wedding, like, climate change is at my wedding in the absence of an entire chunk of who should have been in that room. And the fact that, like, the speech of the, priest when he was marrying us was like very generic because he had met us, you know, moments before because (laughs) he wasn't like the, you know, my husband's sacred scriptures teacher who had known him for years and was a deep personal friend was not able to be there. And I just like, that's, you know, that's not the story of the worst thing that happened to Hurricane Katrina, but it's a story about how like climate change and climate loss and climate disruption, like they pile on and they impact everything. So people lose their house and they lose their family and they lose their connection to where they used to vacation and they lose the story they used to tell. And it's just, it's really disruptive. And and I, something that, you know, the tension between hope and, and grief is one. And I feel like another thing you talk about, Dan, that I think about all the time that I really appreciated the way that you described is sort of the timescale question and that mm-hmm. like one of the ways that you, that I at least sort of pull out when I get like too despairing is sort of go like geologic time. Like I just like look at rocks and like, like that sort of grounds me to be like, okay, like some, some things have lasted for a really, 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 really long time. Totally. Um, and that sort of holds me like I can I can sort of live on like either the like theological or the geological plane for like a minute <laughs> before I kind of go back to like, OK, and I have to like, you know, vote in the California stupid recall thing so that friggin like we don't <laughs> so lose fucking the Senate, stupid. Right? Like it's so, stupid. so that Gavin but Newsom like, can keep like fracking California. Exactly. Thank but you, Gavin. Like, but like I have to do that because like, you know, Diane Feinstein's. Don't get me started. Like, I, so anyway, point being, point being, like, like there's a retreat to like I, I retreat. I notice myself retreating to these like massive timescale things, and then also having to get down to like the small scale, like make sure you mail your ballot, you know, at the uh-huh. Dropbox because like you have to do that. Like you can't only live on rock time. Like you also have to live on like <laughs> yeah. turn your ballot yes. in time. I mean, totally. Dorothy, that's it's that's such a great point because I I was hoping to ask Dan uh, a few moments ago when you mentioned kind of incorporating spirituality into like organizing practices. Um, one of the things that just kind of brought to mind was uh, in your in your book the way you kind of juxtapose your personal urgency, even obsession with the problem, right, with the kind of normalcy of day-to-day politics and the total lack of urgency among politicians. And I feel like the need to incorporate spirituality into our, you know, the way we go about our politics in some way is because like, if you don't, the gap between normal everyday politics and the urgency the situation actually requires will kind of drive you crazy. 
which it sort of did you, right? Yeah, basically there's this feeling like reality is in, is sort of schizophrenic in nature and um, you're constantly living on two levels of consciousness mm-hmm. at all times. The one where your body is moving itself through space and sort of attending to its needs and like doing your job and the other that is like feels like a constant <laughs> existential grappling <laughs> yeah. with what feels uh-huh. like a very large synecdoche for death itself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know synecdoches had sizes, but a large one <laughs> this, is fitting this in this case. This one's huge. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in some ways, like I've, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I do, I do try to practice <laughs> as much as I feel this like grinding urgency behind my organizing work around this problem. I also just like try to be generous towards human failing as well (laughs) and just like human fallibility, um, which is the opposite thing of condoning or excusing it or saying it's something that we have to accept. Mm -hmm. But like even with my parents, you know, who um, who are people I love dearly and who love me dearly and we have a very emotionally communicative relationship. And my father's a fucking oceanographer, you know, he like, <laughs> no, he really knows about climate change and has, and has <laughs> had the basic data framework since the eighties and nineties. Even they have a hard time, what I would call realizing the problem as opposing, huh. as opposed to just knowing about it. And I think that's a product of, you know, it makes sense to me that for people whose basic schemas about what the world is and how it works were formed uh, in a time when the climate crisis wasn't at all a part of public discourse. Like ExxonMobil knew about it and was like systematically burying it with a multi-million dollar propaganda campaign. But, you know, my parents were uh, living their use in blissful ignorance. It makes sense that those schemas would be kind of difficult and costly to give up. I also think there's something really particular. I don't know exactly the generation of your parents, but like I think for people who lived through the nuclear threat, there's a huge thing of like when someone shows up at your door it's like the world is gonna end they're like oh i've been here before we had to crouch under the table didn't happen like bullet dodged and you have to be like no it's different it's not like a guy with a button yeah they they abstract it to like a guy with a button thing so they're like we just have to not get the guy to press the button and we're done. It's a bunch of guys with buttons like many years ago <laughs> yeah. and all the time, all the time, <laughs> just pressing it over and over and over and saying, They've yes, been yes. But the instinct is like, I, I feel talking cross generationally, like they've lived through so many, like this was the end of the world, JK, JK, that they can't take another one. Dan, one of the things you say in the book is that often when you have these conversations with your parents, inevitably even as you want to talk to them about the problem and how it feels to you, they end up being conversations about you, right? About how you're doing, right? And they, they're worried that you're not well because of the work that you do, because of how focused on it you are, because they worry that you're depressed or whatever, you know? But what's interesting about that to me is that also what's going on in this book is that you're not saying it's the only way, obviously, to generate a sense of obligation to the future. But it is something you're playing with, the idea that this hypothetical child is creating the condition under which, at least in the text of the book, for you to fully experience what it is that is happening to the world and what your role in it has to be. And so in a way, this kind of 
familial generational love is working throughout the book. I mean, there's a wonderful line. I know that it's not it's not it's not the the nice thing about this book is that there are there are moments that feel like a perfect kind of closing of the loop and then it it turns around itself again. But there is a moment towards the end of the book where you say writing to you, meaning the hypothetical child you've been writing to in the book, has helped me live in reality to behold the problem without blinking or turning away. In this, there is a second irony that for all my talking of bringing you into the world, it is you ultimately who's bringing me into mine, which is a beautiful sentence. But also, I think that the same thing that is sort of irksome about the way that your parents turn a conversation with you, where you're trying to talk about climate change into a conversation about their love for you and their concern for you. There's a version of that that you're doing with the book. And I'm interested in that. <laughs> but I'm going to take it another, uh, another, uh, another second. I do have a response. I, yeah, I want to engage on that. But I want to I want to hear your response. And then the second question is to sort of trouble that a little bit, because we don't want to reify the idea that the only way to have an obligation to the future or to to, gener to generations that we cannot see, or certainly, and this is something again that is completely text in your in your book, people that we do not know, right, who are very unlike us, that the condition of 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 obligation to the future or to other people is is this kind of natalist relationship. Um, I think especially because we know right now there is a completely homologous, to use a word I recently learned and like, relationship between that kind of way of thinking about the climate crisis and the demands, the obligations it makes on us to future generations as liberals and leftists, and the natalist kind of project of the far right of saying, you know, I mean, you know, the, the 14 words, we must preserve a future for the white children, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> that the idea that politics consists of social reproduction and the obligations that we have to recreating a particular kind of community on the right, the language is, has a relationship to what we're doing here. And we must not make it so the condition of political solidarity with the future or with people we don't know is one that revolves around the family. It's certainly not the traditional family. Yeah. It's important for me to say that I think if I were a better writer and thinker, <laughs> this book would not have been addressed to a hypothetical future <laughs> child of mine. Like, I'm, I'm very serious. I think there is this sort of like shortcut, like emotional bottleneck whereby yeah. we process the profusion of reality that is coming at us in like unprocessable torrents every day through these like <laughs> tiny prisms of like people we care about. Right. Yeah, um, and I think that's like, first of all, that is not a thing that I loathe. Right. And we can't pretend like it's not true. Yeah, Leftists totally. pretend like it's not true all the time to our detriment. Yeah. And of course it's true. And one might even say it's, it's like a beautiful thing for those to be your loci of attention or your like little windows out onto the profusion of reality. But I also think that one of the things that is like demanded of us as citizens now of the Anthropocene is to spread that love and attention out. And really, I think those two things are almost indistinguishable, or at least attention is a absolutely necessary prerequisite to love, to spread that out far past the boundaries of our own family, far past the boundaries of our own lifetime, and even past the boundaries of our own species. You know, we talk about 
solidarity with other people. And I think that's really true. Um, but I think one of the great, the many mistakes of the early white environmental movement in this country was like... So talking, many mistakes. So many fucking mistakes. <laughs> we wasted decades. Um, you know, with the whole trope of the polar bear, like, oh, look at that polar bear. That sucks. We like destroyed that polar bear and now it's drowning on an ice floe. That is a real shame. Let's like try to save the last few remaining polar bears. It's a very, it's a symptomatic indictment that white environmentalists could develop a great amount of solidarity with polar bears and not with and not with poor uh, people yes pr- poor people and brown people in other <laughs> yes, parts of the world yeah not even on yeah on ethical grounds on strategic grounds i mean it's crazy but also to see that polar bears a thing apart from us that we can save or destroy and that's right. a separate question from what's happening to us like of course that polar bear is the canary in our coal mine mm-hmm. and like if it's going down we're going down with it most likely can I complain about another white environmentalist uh, <laughs> failure sure. while, while we're on it? Just yes, because yes. the other thing is that the mechanism by which they offered that we could save the polar bear was slightly different strategic consumption choices yes. in um, our lives yeah. as consumers, which is our most profound identity is shopping person. So, like, be sad about a polar bear and then do Buy a different... Buy a canvas bag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, uh, even the yeah. phrase carbon footprint, that was oh, invented by executives at British Petroleum. It was a genius move. It was a masterstroke, obviously, because no, it dovetailed with individual consumerism. It dovetailed with the Protestant ethic. It's like, let's fucking shove all this onto, yeah. like... You Could know? we be more atomized? Yeah. Could we have less solidarity, less community, less a sense of interconnection? Yeah, and the other, the other, I think, strategic genius of that is that like force it forced the responsibility for saving the world onto like parents who are wringing their hands at the grocery store. Like, do they spring for the recycled paper towels yeah. or whatever? Totally. But it also just like traps them in this cesspool of guilt. Right. And guilt is a very weak foundation from which to take political action. Like the fossil fuel corporations want you to hate yourself because you can't consume well enough to like resist their like systemic juggernaut. Because not only then do you chase this red herring, but you also can't do things like vulnerably put yourself in a group space with people who share your values to build political power. Like those two projects are anathema. Yeah. But the, the last thing that I wanted to say about like the ways in which my book fell far short of the book that I would love to read (laughs) was uh, I just finished, I told Sam about this book briefly, but I just finished this incredible novel by the Brazilian novelist uh, Clarice Lispector Mm -hmm. um, called The Passion According to G.H. And the entirety of that novel, there's there's one plot point, which is that uh, a woman walks into an empty room and, and encounters a cockroach. And then for 200 pages, her protagonist is trying, I wouldn't describe it as empathy, but is trying to break down the ontological barriers she's erected between herself and the cockroach <laughs> and see herself as essentially of the same thing, which mm-hmm. I actually think is is not a crazy metaphysical gloss on what reality is. And she's she's like one of the greatest literary geniuses of the 20th century. Yeah. And it was still a very hard project for her. So I'm only semi-joking when I say if I were a better writer, if I were, if I possessed a genius equivalent to Clarice's, uh, I would have addressed this book to mm-hmm. a future member of some other species. Cockroach. Um, a cockroach. cockroach, specifically. Yeah. Dan Shirell woke up one morning and discovered <laughs> that, his, that his child was a cockroach. Exactly. Can I, um, can I uh, read another part of 
uh, Laudato Si because it does pertain exactly to this. I'm not going to object, Dorothy. Please. <laughs> um, it's, it's on civic and political love. Um, and, and the quote is, it's part number 228, but it says, care for nature is a part of a lifestyle which includes the capacity for living together and communion. Jesus reminded us that we have God as our common father, and that makes us brothers and sisters. Fraternal love can only be gratuitous. It can never be a means of repaying others for what they have done or will do for us. And I wanted to pause there because I think that's like the most profound and most difficult thing to accept about the project of having children is hmm, hmm. they might never do anything for you. Hmm. Like uh-huh. even smile, right? Hmm. Like even say, I love you, even give you one hug. Like huh. they, they might never do that. And you are still embarking on a project of loving them, which I think is also spiritually in that generosity, a way to understand loving someone, you know, in a different country, in a different huh. community, across an ocean in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. like, I don't need that person to tell me thank you to access a form of love. And I also wow. have to have to find a way not to need my own child to tell me thank you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I love that point. And it feels so analogous in some ways to like the relationship we need to cultivate with the planet itself. And that sounds, it sounds very woo woo. Like any talk of like love for the love for the earth, like automatically shunts you into like unstrategic sixties hippiedom. Well, I want, I was once walking down the street with Dan and he, uh, <laughs> he saw f- billowing on a scaffolding, uh, s- uh, some, some black mesh that was blowing in the wind. And he looked at it and he said, that is so beautiful. Yeah, we were on set for um, American Beauty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's making a joke, but it this in fact happened. That was a mean and undermining joke. Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, I take it as a, I take it as an endearment, Sam. Um, it, is, it is, of course. You know, I think um, in a very similar way, the quote unquote. I mean, we're not really trying to save the planet. The planet's the planet will continue on without us. What we're trying to preserve is like some semblance of equitable human civilization. But we are going to put in all this work over the next few decades to prevent these ecosystems from unraveling, and they are not going to thank us. We know, like shit's going to get worse. Things will keep feeling like it's they're spinning out of control, and our ability to like love despite and find value despite. I think is going to be incredibly important. And for that, I'm almost, and I fucking love like watching planet earth and like smoking a joint and like watching whatever, <laughs> like, like seals feed on, you know, flock, like schools of sturgeon or whatever, but like, it makes you, know, you hungry for sturgeon. It makes you hungry for sturgeon. And for sure, there is a way in which like, I want to also cultivate an aesthetics of something that's like compromised and de-aestheticized and still deeply and inherently valuable uh-huh yeah i just w- i just have to say this whole time i was going to resist saying this but you know it really is, there is something to bernie's great line uh in the comeback right with aoc in october about loving someone you don't know yeah yeah and yeah. like yeah. there and i think part of it is we we have one word in english love right but like there's there's the love for a friend there's the love for your partner there's the love for you know, kind of humanity in general. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I'm all for the hippy dippy stuff. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> and I think, I think that as a, as an obligation and as a, an highest aspiration, it was entirely right. We must love someone who is not like ourselves. 
I think unfortunately the problem is that like the po- the political strategy, the politics that is demanded to achieve the ends that we want, mm. um, we actually need to organize people around the communities that they that they already love. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know that we need that 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 unfortunately we need people to participate in Bernie's movement as churchgoers, as nurses, uh-huh. as as people who have have a sense of obligation to a community who they already love, and that the idea that Bernie could shout from the stage, you must love people you don't already love, you must love a person you don't know, that is, should be our highest aspiration. But yep. the left will never win if we rely, <laughs> we rely on that, on inst- that. <laughs> rely yeah. on that yeah. instinct in people. I yeah. mean, I know this is a very yeah. basic, I'm sure Dan is thinking this is like the most basic uh, insight of the kind of organizing uh-huh. that he does, but. No, this isn't basic. This isn't basic at all, Sam. And I think leftists in general have a discomfort with I. I feel like having the horizon of their politics not match exactly the practice of their politics. And I actually think that like those two things can and should be different. And that's like the only way to move forward. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. and, you know. And Sam, I would just remind you that it was no less an authority than uh, Waylon Jennings who told us maybe it's time to get back to the basics of love. There's nothing wrong with the basics, you know. I'm all about. I'm all about the basics. But Dan, I, a more serious point, Dan, is I did think actually, kind of all joking aside about you know like expanding the circle of love, you really uh, I, I thought very vividly brought out the way like just in terms of like the various materials of the earth of this planet, the way they, you know, we kind of feed off the past, like literally, and these things stay with us. Like they have an enduring presence in our lives, even if we think we've thrown them away and they're done for. Yeah. Like like that part of your book actually was extremely effective, I thought. And there's this, there's this concept from again, Australian Aboriginal cosmology that I, that I was a bit of a mind alterer for me. I mean, I read the Eckhart Tolle book that talks about like the now you got to live in the now. That's a very, um, you know, that's a very sort of like juice cleanse aesthetic thing to say. Um, <laughs> I'm not a fan of his, I should just say. Just <laughs> yeah, I'm like, putting it I, out there for yeah, all listeners. Yeah, I'm not a fan of his either. Um, <laughs> and I think partially like contrasting the brevity of the now with this concept that Aboriginal pe- people talk about of the everywhere and analog to everywhere, mm-hmm. where like the metaphysical proposition is like the past doesn't go away. And the future isn't not here already. Like everything exists ontologically. And just because it's moved out of turn and sequence doesn't lessen its weight. Hmm. Um, And it's really, it's hard for me. I can like grasp the hem of that garment having grown up in fucking suburban New Jersey in the 90s. (laughs) But um, I think it's an important, again, it's an important horizon to point ourselves towards. Yeah, it's, it's God time. Right, like if you believe in in some sort of, <laughs> it's God <laughs> time, maybe. But it is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like it's like I feel like if you believe in God, like that's how God understands time is everything yeah. right. happening absolutely. And like you know, you were talking about like those moments where you plug in and you feel like the full weight of either the sadness or the joy like just like overwhelming, like the overwhelming beauty of something or like the overwhelming crushing of something. Like, I feel like that's like t- to me, for me, that's like also plugging into like, oh, I think God sees that all the time. Like God holds hmm. all that sadness all the time. God holds all that beauty all the time. I can touch it for a second, you know, when when everything is totally right. And then I go back to being like a 
blind moron, but yeah. like for an instant, <laughs> I can, I can see it. And, and it's the same thing with time. Like mm. I have to experience everything as like a frantic series of deadlines and to do's, but like sometimes if I work at it, I can transcend and get a sense of like time as a giant thing that stretches into the past and into the future. Yeah. And like cultivating that as a discipline on the left. I mean, I think there's a lot of cynicism about like going there, but this is in fact, I think the most hard knuckly pragmatic thing we can do because it's going to be a fucking roller coaster. I mean, time itself feels that there's a reason you know, scholars refer to this period as the great acceleration. Like we can't Mm -hmm. like shit. It's like we've put the accelerator to the floor and like forever. And that's going to be the feeling of the rest of our lives. And that Mm -hmm. is going to be, if we are stuck in our old model of what time is, that is going to be a near unbearable state of affairs, I think. I mean, and that was kind of what was behind my earlier question about like how different is what we're experiencing now. I mean, I was thinking of the great line in Mad Men when Burt Cooper's secretary died and they go to write her obituary and he kind of like dictates to another secretary says she was born in a barn and died on like the 87th floor of the time life building. She was an astronaut. <laughs> you know? uh, but that, but that, I mean, when you think about it, like life from say 100 AD to like 1500 AD didn't change that much. And then, you know, the extent it's changed in just in the last 200 years is yeah remarkable and and i kind of feel like you sound like it's a dorm room you know stoner bullshit uh bull session appreciate that matt no no (laughs) no, i'm saying when you start talking about like time right but you know it actually really is kind of crazy what like we put human beings through recently and even kurt vonnegut said like listen like we were we've evolved to be like in hunter-gatherer societies and we live in modern capitalism and that's why we're all so sad yeah and there's something to that, I think. Mm. I think it's also the case that our experience of time, as Dan pointed to earlier, is completely mediated by the way we engage with the media and social media and the kind of um, hyperactivity of um, the information ecology. <laughs> Maybe you, that we Sam, live. but not me or Dorothy. <laughs> no, <laughs> no I happen to. I am on a Twitter hiatus, and you two are, I'm sure, just tweeting away. Tweeting up a storm. I mean, I will say that. I think that one of the things that living with Dan uh, when we did inclined me toward as an aspiration was to be much more disciplined about attention and how I direct it um, because it's a great it's it's really one of the great challenges of our of our moment is like on what do you spend your time and it's not exclusive it's not only an ethical question it's a question of your own sort of psychology and their your <laughs> your well-being um <laughs> therapeutic it is, necessities it is, yeah 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 it is also an ethical question uh dorothy do you have any final comments yeah absolutely i was just gonna say that i i know that dan um sort of mentioned the thing about you know attention is a form of love um in the book um and i yeah. i really appreciated that and uh that's also plays a pivotal role in um the movie ladybird which has, Ooh, I love that movie. you know, which I love that movie too. And, and I think the idea that attention, attention is, is love, you know, makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me. And something that I would, I would say that I try with my own children is to, you know, I don't know how I can c- prepare them for a world of climate crisis. I don't think the answer is like, 
learn to code or, you know, like <laughs> build a fortress, right? Like there, there are bad answers that people will give to that question. Um, but I think what I try to do and what my husband tries to do is, is make sure that we are focusing their attention on the natural world, on other people, um, yeah. on mm-hmm. real experiences, on real ways of accomplishing things um, in this world um, and, and trying to really limit the amount that they encounter, you know, sort of mediated, produced simulacra selves. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and that feels like whatever climate change will be and do in their lives, the more connections they can have with other people and other species will be some kind of bulwark, I hope, for how they experience and what they go through uh, as they grow up. Uh, you know, one of the great lines of Simone Weil is that prayer is a form of attention, which I've always really loved. Yeah. I think I, qu- didn't I quote that in the book somewhere? Yeah. Did you? Yeah, I oh, did. Oh, yeah. Crap. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but it's, it's like, uh, for years, it's been one of my favorites because I love the idea that what you're paying attention, it kind of goes in reverse too, right? Like, yeah. you know, your spiritual life is, is quite dictated by what you pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's right. It's right near the end. You quoted it and it made me really yeah. happy. I think in general, when you talk about like the thing about the climate crisis is like, there's this reaction, I think, from a lot of people, including myself, of like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, we already live in like a country <laughs> with like a failing social security state apparatus and like people go broke and die because they can't afford health care and our economy runs on desperation. And now this thing is like coming for us and it just feels yeah. like this extra fucking chore and mm-hmm. thing you have to take into account. And I have felt that way many times. Like, I cannot believe that this is how I'm going to spend my life. It's just fucking clawing us back from the brink or trying to. But I think that when I take a step back and I think writing this book has helped me to make tangible the many spiritual and cognitive fruits, I think, of looking this thing in the face and cultivating the forms of attention that will allow Mm -hmm. me and the people I love to live through it. I actually think there's like an immense amount to be gained. And even when I made the very deliberate choice, much to Penguin's chagrin, to stay off Twitter (laughs) forever. Um, What platforms are you on, Dan? (laughs) Yeah, I told them I have a private Goodreads account. They were not um, (laughs) pleased with that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and that's not a prescriptive thing. I think I, I know many people that have a very healthy relationship to it, but for None me, of them are on this podcast, but yeah, I'm sure yes, exactly somewhere, right. somewhere out there in the world. I think when I inhabit that world, I feel the great acceleration taking me by the fucking lapels and like dragging me behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think cultivating times during the day where in a very practical sense, I just like walk around the block and like notice one thing. It's like a fucking potted fern on a porch or something <laughs> and just like sit there and pay attention to it. And like nothing else is demanding of me and that I think practice far from being mutually exclusive with the organizing work I do day to day which is like fucking trying to like convene a coalition of like the teachers unions and the building trades unions to like leverage the right kinds of political pressure in like northern California to get climate demands inserted into collective bargaining agreements like that sort of hard knuckle political work I don't think is mutually exclusive with like taking the time to cultivate 
forms of attention and love that can survive in the Anthropocene and not just feed off of and into its like worst maladies. Totally. <laughs> um, totally. But I, I have a hard time sometimes like bridging those worlds. And I think that's also was part of the project of this book was to just like at least uh, try to make vivid those things existing in concert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say this as a closing is that um, I think this book is simultaneously a product of the fact that you are capable of of that sort of disciplined attention, which is to say prayer, which is to say love. It's a It's a climate change book that's like no other. And at the same time, because you have never, because you continue to do the work that you do and the work that you did leading up to it, it's a book that only you could have written. I think that like this, for me, I'll say, I've always struggled with this kind of thing of how do you reconcile the artistic aspiration and the and this sense of ob- ethical obligation, political obligation to the work that must be done. And I think that both this book and the and the work that you've done as a as an organizer is kind of a um, a rejoinder to the idea that those things are mutually exclusive. Um, so I'm very thankful for the book existing in the world, and I'm also very thankful for you <laughs> existing <Aww>. in the world. <laughs> oh, Sam, the feeling is deeply mutual. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that can't be topped, but we should just once again give the name of the book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World, by our great friend Daniel Shirell. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dorothy. Thank you, Sam. And Dorothy, I'm, I so deeply look forward to the uh, show that you guys are producing. And uh, I'm at, I, because you're involved, I'm certain that it will be uh, world-shaking and inc- extraordinary. Thank you. Well, we got to make it first. So right now, just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's just hope it gets made. Yeah, <laughs> truly. Love you all very much. And uh, thanks for doing this. Love you too. Definitely. Yeah. Love you guys Bye. too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Three.